Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Growing up as a football-crazed little boy in the 1970s and 1980s, I adored the World Cup. I zealously collected the Panini stickers, painstakingly circled the fixtures in my parents' copy of the Radio Times, and watched goggle-eyed as Zico, Socrates and Maradona pirouetted across our television screen. Sadly, today it is simply impossible to look forward to Brazil's carnival of football with the same innocent enthusiasm. The greatest sporting exhibition on the planet has become a bloated monstrosity. Far from embodying the Corinthian virtues of athletic excellence and fair play, the World Cup has become synonymous with corporate greed, institutional corruption, and the widening gulf between the international super-rich and the downtrodden masses. That, uh, Dominic Sandbrook, was a top historian harumphing in the Daily Mail before the World Cup in Brazil in 2014, and the top historian was, of course, yourself. It was beautiful prose, Tom. Not just powerful, but beautifully written, I think. Very, very thought-provoking. <laughs> but our guest is laughing scornfully, I will, I will but say. But Dominic, Dominic, our last, we, we finished our sweep through the World Cup uh, in our last episode in Argentina in 1978. We and did. you could say that, that there was a lot of corporate greed there. There was certainly quite a lot of institutional corruption. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, they, the Argentine government were bussing shanty people out to shanty towns, you know, where they weren't playing yeah. fixtures. So, plus a change, basically, isn't it, between Brazil and Qatar today? I mean, uh, absolutely right. Has anything Tom. changed I mean, much? When you look, when you look at the two episodes we have already done, um, it's obvious that the World Cup has been associated from the very beginning with state building, with nationalism, with money, obviously, because football has always been associated with money. Um, and with politics. So when people say, let's keep politics out of sports, politics has never been out of the World Cup. But I think it's certainly true, I would say, that in the last, let's say, 30 years or so, the sort of corporate stranglehold over the World Cup has been stronger and stronger. The sense of it being this sort of, there was a slight hint of innocence, wasn't there, about those 1930s? Yeah, a bit. Certainly 1930, well, the very first one. Apart I mean, from not, Mussolini, Not the bits from Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question about how this, this 1920s, 1930s product, the World Cup, um, where it sees itself in the 21st century. And is it just a vehicle for corporate investment and for dictators and so on? But I think what you would also say is that it has grown in significance even greater than it was, say, in the, the 60s or 70s. And historians, I guess, in a hundred years' time, looking back at this period, will see the World Cup as an absolutely central part of making sense of the geopolitics of this period. Um, and I think that when you're studying a kind of a major aspect of history, all the way through the episodes we've done, we've been hamstrung by our inability to actually have figures from the period of history that we're discussing actually on the show. So when we did the- Pelé didn't join us, sadly. Well, but, but when we did the Battle of Trafalgar, we didn't have Nelson. You know, we did the conquests of Alexander. He, he couldn't turn up. <laughs> but for this, we're going into, you know, the, the 80s, the 90s, the 21st century World Cup. We have a top figure from history on our show, do we not? We do indeed. So- uh, for our American Australian listeners, people who are not interested in football, he'll take a tiny bit of introduction. 
uh, all our British listeners and our European listeners will know him immediately. Um, he was born in 1960. He's from Leicester. He's the face of crisps, or as Americans would say, chips. So that will give his identity away straight away. Uh, he was the top scorer in the 1986 World Cup, um, won the Golden Boot. He went on to captain his country, to captain England. And ever since retiring, he has been really the media face of, of football, not just in England, I think, but one of the the absolutely central sort of media faces of football around the world. And it is, of course, Gary Lineker. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be on. So... We're, we're talking about you as a historical figure, which, which, uh, <laughs> which in the most now. flattering yeah. sense. In the most, the most flattering, flattering sense. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Just as we were talking about Alexander the Great or, or Nelson, as Tom says. So you're born in 1960 in Leicester. You're from a family of greengrocers, I think. Is that right? Yeah, my dad was a market trader, sold fruit. So do you remember, so you're too young to remember them watching England in 1966, yeah. I suppose. But Sadly, 19, yes. 1970? 70 was my first um, World Cup, I remember that, which was obviously in Mexico. Um, and it was a very colourful and great World Cup. And um, I, my, one of my first ever memories was England probably playing Brazil in the, in the group stage. Um, and it was the game where Banks pulled off the remarkable save from Pele's header. Uh, he scooped it over the bar. And then um, latterly in the tournament, which was England got to the quarterfinals and played against um, West Germany, as it was then, of course. And we were, England were two up. Now, my, I, my dad, who I said was a, a fruiter and market trader, worked really hard all hours, but he, he, they'd take um, a day off sometimes, and he'd have a – every week they would have a card game at the house, and my mum kind of hosted and did a bit, and they gave her a little few quid every now and again for that. And there was like – six, seven blokes in the house every Monday and they'd go all night, all night until the next morning they'd go to work or whatever. And on this, and it never stopped for anything, but this one night they did stop to watch England um, play against Germany and we were two up and we going to, thought we were going to win and then Germany came back and, and won in extra time, 3-2. Um, and I was crying and, and I remember my dad and... Amongst others, Engelbert Humperdinck was one of the players playing cards in my house. That Engelbert night. Humperdinck, he, yeah, he used to come around. All, I know <laughs> wow, it's bizarre. Wow. Um, uh, Jerry Did Dorsey, it? as he was known back then, but Engel, as he was known to everyone in our house, so he came round, and then I was in tears, floods of tears, with England losing because I was only what nine years old, and they just carried. They just went right. Let's get back and play cards then, and they started and carried on all night. Did like Engelbert happen? So it's in my. Did Engelbert give a, a song to cheer you I, up? I, or? I, I don't think he probably did. <laughs> oh, that's wow. well, that's, that was unexpected. <laughs> yes. So, so um, we've done 1978. So the next the next uh, World Cup is in Spain in 1982, and obviously geopol- geopolitics are a massive factor in that for Britain and for Argentina. Because Dominic, is, is what, what's the state of play in the Falklands as so the World the Cup goes Falklands, on? Falklands, uh, there was some talk before the tournament um, of should the British teams pull out? So that's England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Should Argentina pull out because they're they're fighting this war? Didn't Jimmy Greaves say that um, they should have a home nations tournament and the money exactly. should go to yeah. servicemen? Jimmy Greaves. So for those people who don't know, who was a former striker, brilliant striker, but have become a pundit. Player. But pundit in the 1980s, he was no stranger to um, Controversy. to outlandish um, <laughs> suggestions on TV. But they didn't pull out, obviously. And the, and the war ended, I think, the day after the tournament started. Um, the other thing is that the draw had 
I, I, they had one of those incredibly complicated drawers that they had at times. Oh, with little boys, wasn't it? With sort of, but they also, they had a series of groups. So you were in one group, then you were in another group. Yeah, there was a double group stage then, wasn't there? Going there all the way down the tournament because England got to the, um, the second group stage and then didn't they didn't lose but they also didn't score didn't score yeah and it was kind of a bizarre concept that going from one group stage and then into another group stage to get the two finalists but what that meant was we weren't the semi we we we, uh, we didn't play argentina no it would be there was, there was it would be very unlikely that we would was that gerrymandered i don't think so i don't i don't think it was gerry- i mean i think the draws there's often been suggestions about draws being gerrymandered to favor the hosts but i don't think this one was i might be wrong um I mean, there's always conspiracy theories about all World Cup draws. They are. The hot balls in the pot. Are the hot balls, Gary? Uh, well, not from my experience. They're all pretty cold. <laughs> right. That's, a, that's I've good. Done a, I've done the odd draw in my time. <laughs> so, 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 Gary, you had started as a professional footballer by 1982, hadn't you? You playing for Leicester. Yeah, I was playing right? for Leicester. I was kind of a slow developer. I didn't break into the England team until I was in my mid-20s, 24, so 25. Yeah, 84, you started playing for England 84 then? was, yeah, my, my debut, um, which I came on in... In at Hamden Park against Scotland, came on for Glenn Hoddle in the last ten minutes, and then I didn't really play again for until probably eighty five, really, and then I started scoring. And then the mud, the World Cup. So as a player, I mean, for those people, many many listeners who are, who don't know much about football and don't know don't probably are not massively invested in football. How much does the World Cup loom for you, genuinely, as a professional? When as is it the be all and end all? Is it this dream, or is it just another? No, no, it's gen- no, it's huge. It's it's. It's the biggest stage you can possibly play on as a footballer. Um, you could argue whether it's the best competition um, to play in now because the Champions League is so incredibly strong uh, and club football, often they're probably better sides overall. But for a player, for an individual, it's, it's, it's the pinnacle to represent first your country and then secondly your country at a World Cup. And it, it really is um, incredibly special and it is all, all also to this day I think players even you know with the money they earn it doesn't matter representing your country um, genuinely yeah. does make you feel incredibly proud so just to jump in that thing about representing your country so the thing that often annoys fans is they'll see of a club team yeah is they'll say the, the player will you know kiss the badge mm. <laughs> give everything for their, you know, Huddersfield town or whatever. And then what do you know, a week later he's moved to Luton and he's kissing that badge too. So there's a degree of, you could say there's a degree of cynicism, but playing for your country, when you're singing the anthem, all that stuff, yeah. I mean, does it really, or, are people cynical about that behind the scenes? Or? I don't think so. I don't think sometimes you'll get, you know, when the team's not playing very well, and particularly in a tournament like that, you'll often get the mud thrown at you for not trying and they're not trying, they're not competing hard enough. And it's never that. Sometimes it can be that you care too much and you can't, the pressure becomes too much uh, for some players. Um, But generally every player gives everything um, to be in this tournament. And it's one of those, particularly the World Cup we've got coming up now is that, you know, we're playing right up to the World Cup. So loads of players are getting injured last minute and missing out, which is, is a real shame. So, Yes, it's it, it. I mean, it sounds a bit a, a bit pathetic, but uh, you know, to say that it's so important, but it genuinely, genuinely does matter, and it's it's. And do you think also part of that is that um, it it is this kind of regular every four years, and each World Cup is remembered and commemorated. So you know that if you pull in a, a brilliant performance, you will be a part of this um, 
folklore. You'll become part of it. It's, it's really the best opportunity you have to become internationally significant. Absolutely. I mean, uh, take my, my own personal situation. When I went, to, I, my first World Cup that I played in was 86 in Mexico. Um, and that transformed my life. You know, I went into it as a player that was just breaking through, had a couple of good seasons, um, you know, won the golden boot in England for Leicester and then Everton. Um, and then I went to the World Cup and I was known back in England, you know, but but then I played in the World Cup and I, I finished top scorer in the competition, won the golden boot and life changed. Um, suddenly I was on a plane, I was on my way to Barcelona to, to sign and play for them for three years. Um, so it is a, is a thing that can, can launch your career in many ways. And it certainly did mine. Just that thing about going to Mexico. I mean, for people of, you know, certainly my age and, and Tom's age, in Mexico feels like the sort of the canonical place where you have to have World Cups because 1970 was in Mexico, yeah. the Pele World Cup, then the Maradona and Lineker World Cup in, uh, in, in the 80s. I think, we'll, I think just the Maradona World Cup. <laughs> well, it's good to butter up the guests, isn't it, Tom? Absolutely. Um, so Mexico, but but uh, somebody from, as you say, from Leicester, the market trading background, all that stuff, to go to Mexico, which basically British people didn't go to. I mean, was did that? Were you just so much in the football bubble that you didn't kind of notice, or did it? Was it as mad and outlandish as it kind of sounds? Um, it, it was really, but at, at the time, you, as you quite rightly say, you are in a bubble. And we did go there the year before to, to compete in a, a little mini tournament just to try and acclimatise, get a feel, acclimatise, yeah. that sort of thing. And obviously, you know, Mexico at that stage, is, well, I've, I mean, I've watched these series of Narcos, you know, on that. It's like, I had no idea that was going on, that kind of stuff. You know, you have mass killings and the drug wars and the cartels and all, all this stuff was in its height at that particular point. And I used to wonder, I remember when we were there, I wondered why we had this amazing kind of security details mm. with outriding bikes and massive guns driving around with us everywhere we went. Um, when I saw that series, it made sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, because, because I guess the world then was less globalized. So it was much less connected. Mm. It, Countries like Mexico, if you're European, were more foreign, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it was. It, um, I remember, though, it was, uh, I mean, it was a beautiful place. Um, and we had to acclimatise, and it's because of a lot of Mexico is quite high, it's like altitude. Mexico City, for example, where we ended up playing last 16 in the quarterfinal. Prior to that, though, we, we had to play in Monterrey, which was a lot lower but it was incredibly hot. We played three games there in, in the daytime. I think two of the games were at midday and one at four o'clock or it might be the other way around. But we were playing in 40-odd degrees centigrade. And it was, you know, nowadays they would, I don't know whether they'd even allow that. It's, it'd be too dangerous. But um, it was, and we, so we had to acclimatise and we went, we went before, we went to um, Colorado for altitude training, etc. But we also had to train for the extreme heat. And we, I remember we used to, Bobby Robson decided that we should all train in a steam room. So we were doing all press-ups and jump squats and all these things in a steam room to get oh, used God. to, that is to very playing in, That's in, my idea in of that heat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you were only allowed one call a week home, is that true? Well, yeah, in those, obviously no mobile phones back then. Um, and, you know, sometimes we, we discussed the, the boredom of players pre-World Cup when you spend a few weeks together before the actual thing starts. Um, so you've got to keep yourself entertained. But yeah, there were no mobile phones, no computer games, no laptops, no any, you know, you, there's, 
very little to do. So you had to make a bit of your own entertainment and also getting any kind of phone. We were allowed one phone call home a week. Um, and the interesting thing was just before the World Cup, because I'd done really well with Everton, there was a little bit of interest from from Barcelona. Um, and I had a conversation with my agent before I went and, and, and I said, right, I'm going to the World Cup. I don't want any distraction. He went, that's absolutely right. Totally understand. So we get through to the, the quarterfinal. We beat Paraguay and I'd scored three against Poland. I scored two against Paraguay. And then we've, we've now got to play against Argentina in, in the quarterfinals. And, and we're all sitting in the room and someone comes in and says, there's a phone call for you at reception. And I was like, oh my God, a phone call. Wow, <laughs> it's incredible. So I go there and I went, hello. He said, oh, it, it, it was my agent, John Holmes, who look, still looks after me to this day. So he said, um, he said, I know we had an agreement that I wouldn't, bother you during the world cup he said but situation has has arisen and i think it's only right that i'd call you about it he said i've had barcelona on the phone because i obviously just scored a few goals they're quite pretty quiet in the start of the tournament when i was hopeless um so he said they've come on and they've said we want gary he's got to sign and he's got to agree to sign now otherwise it's off he said so i felt like i had to tell you i said well I said, I can't do that now. Imagine if I signed for Barcelona during the World Cup. I'd be hung drawn a quarter when I get home. I said, if they want me now, they'll want me at the end of the tournament. Um, so, and he went, that's absolutely the answer I needed to hear, but I wanted to tell mm. you. So, yeah, that was my one phone call, that was, which is quite remarkable. I did eventually go to Barcelona. And that's just before the game against Argentina. I a mean, couple of days the- before, yeah. So the famous quarterfinal against Argentina, mm. how, how much were you and the team aware of the the context yeah. that was provided both by footballing history and by political history? Oh, we were made very aware because every single um, press conference, every single interview that that we were we were doing, um, we were asked about you know the Falklands conflict. Will that affect the game? Is that does it make it more important? And everybody, everybody was just trying to play it down. Um, and I. And and so were the Argentinians as well. I saw Maradona interview before the game, and um, but I think it added to it. And I honestly think, and I was having this conversation with a few friends the other day. I honestly, think that that game, the quarterfinal against Argentina, is the most not necessarily the best, but certainly I think the most famous game in the history of football. I mean, people will come and throw other things at me, and I think it's it was a World Cup quarterfinal. It was just a few years after the war in the Falklands, you got the greatest goal probably ever scored. Yeah. And also the most infamous goal ever so scored, just for people the hand who of God. So just for people who don't know anything about football, just explain why it's so famous and, and, and why those two goals are so significant. Well, it was two of the, you know, the big powers in world football. It was post the war and the game featured Diego Armando Maradona, who was um, the best footballer on earth by um, quite some distance at the time and it was goalless in the first half it wasn't a very good game and then the second half the ball gets flicked back by S- Steve Hodge um, who claims to this day that it was a deliberate back pass but I don't know how I'm not sure um, and Diego Maradona comes up goes as low he's going to head it and then punches it into the net now the referee didn't see it the linesman, I think, did, but didn't have the nerve to give it. He's subsequently written a book where he did say he thought he handballed it, but he, he didn't have the nerve to give the decision. 
and they led 1-0. And then just a few minutes later, Maradona picks the ball up on the halfway line, does a wriggle, does a turn, does a twist, beats one, beats two, beats three, beats four, beats five, goes around Pete Shilton and knocks it in the back of the net with on a, on a pitch that was like a cabbage patch. So how he did that um, was, it was just defied belief. It's the, I've said this many times, but it's the one time in my life where I... Th- I thought I should probably applaud a goal. I didn't because I would I'd be given hell at home. So, <laughs> um, and after that, we came back. John Barnes came on, whipped the ball across. I got the goal that no one remembers in that game. And everybody I, remembers that goal. Yeah, we all remember. Oh, that. Thank you we very all much. Remember thank that. you very much. In, in England, they might remember. And then, just a couple of minutes before the end of the game, Barnes again gets down the left, crosses a ball in, and I think I'm going to score. I head it, and some from somewhere, this I think it was a Lartica chair. The left back for Argentina jumps on, hits the back of his head and goes out and we lost the game. But to have a game that was A, post a a war between two countries, B, in a World Cup and a knockout game in a quarterfinal, to have the best goal ever scored and probably the most impudent goal ever scored. I think think it's the most famous game ever. It was brilliant. He not only said that, he said it was a little bit the head of Maradona and a little bit the hand of God. Yeah. I mean, what a brilliant line to think <laughs> yeah. of at the end of that. And Maradona, I mean, so so I would guess even our listeners who despise football will definitely have heard of Maradona. I mean, Maradona is one of the, probably the two most famous footballers who ever lived with Pele. And I guess you've met him a lot, haven't you? Because you've interviewed him. You've been, to, I think you've been to Argentina. To I meet did him, a documentary you? with him for two or three days yeah. in his company. And his, his life was just extraordinary is it i mean he, he he had his obviously had his issues um with addiction and it, it, i mean we lost him just a couple of years ago um sadly but he was uh, he was a, an amazing individual hugely charismatic and unbelievably talented you know for you certainly for your american he's kind of like the michael jordan of 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 football in many ways but kind of more than that because to argentinians i get the sense that so he's from the streets. He was that urchin. So he's the sort of the, he's the tiny. He was, five, he was five foot four. But also, he'd beaten the Anglo-Saxon pirates that Argentina had always blamed. You know, going back to the nineteenth century, they'd sort of resented Britain. Mm. And he had out, he hadn't just beat us with a good goal, but he'd outsmarted us with a yeah a, a, a bad goal. As it were. He, yeah. he gets. I think that in Argentina, they, he gets as much credit for punching the ball in the net because they think that <laughs> yeah. was. The ultimate in trickery um, yeah. and skullduggery, and I think they 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 love that as- aspect of it. Whereas we here, we, we wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even think of to have done that. I mean, I could have done that with that cross at the end. To be perfectly honest, if I'd known the fellow was coming in, I could have punched it in. But it wouldn't <laughs> yeah. cross my mind. To we're just do too it. sporting, aren't we, Gary? Yeah. That's the trouble. Well, it's it's the <laughs> Corinthian spirit, Dominic. That you were talking spirit about. never yeah, gets you anywhere, does it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah so we got knocked out. So, exactly, but, but Maradona also huge, hugely, hugely popular in Naples. He he plays oh, in Naples. Well, well he played for Naples. He played for Napoli, and they won um, Syria for the first time ever in their, their history. So there's a shrine to him. I saw a shrine. They got a ha- one of oh, his yeah. hairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, so, when I spent the two or three days with him in in Buenos Aires, was I, I went to his home. We had a barbecue, and then we went to we went to watch a game. We went to watch um, Boca Juniors play at the Bombonera, and. It was it was an extraordinary experience. There were th- it was it was like you know when you 
you know, watch a film, you know, Life of Brian, for example, when they're all following the Messiah. It was, it was like, it was like that. People came from everywhere and treated him like this God and they're crying at his feet. And I'm thinking, how can you live like this every day? Everywhere he goes was like, and we went up and he has his own box at the um, Bombonera where Boca Juniors play, which is his team. And, and we go up there and as soon as he stands on it, like a balcony, like a <laughs> kind of like Caesar, I was looking at his, <laughs> and, and the whole crowd starts singing and jumping and, and he's leaning over the balcony. He's leaning over so much that his daughter, I remember, was holding him to try to make sure they didn't fall off the edge of the balcony. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was the most spectacular and it was, it was mad really. Cause I played in an era of, you know, with wonderful players, you know, like Zico and people like Platini and, but this fellow was, these fellows were so good, but he was on a completely different level again. He was that good. Yeah. So he, the next World Cup is 1990 and that's in Italy. So Maradona again, to an extent is, you know, I he's mean, a he's key a key figure, isn't he? He's yeah. a key figure. but. um this is a time when um, uh, the England team is notorious for being for hooliganism, troubles with hooliganism, yeah. endless calls to bring back the birch from outraged <laughs> Tory MPs and so on. Um, and so you you get kind of get penned in Sardinia, don't you? The the England, the group we England did. In. That's where the draw put us. I don't know whether it was deliberate to try and stick us on a little island um, to keep our, our supporters away. But I mean, obviously, I I my, my whole career was played. Um, constantly um with the backdrop of of hooliganism of our england fans that as some of them not all of them obviously in a, a small percentage but would go follow the england team anywhere to try and have a fight and cause trouble and it was it was pretty grim i've seen I, you know there were various trips abroad I, where i'd witnessed it myself and it was you know, it's just, I just never really could get my head around it. But, but the, yes. But the England team in that tournament, you won the, the good, was it the good behavior award or whatever? You got a gold star <laughs> for, for being the best behaved <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a small conversation. But I guess, so the 1990 World Cup is the middle class World Cup, having talked about the hooliganism. And it's, it's, it's the one where middle class people start following it. Uh, opera, Pavarotti, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. In in the UK, I think uh, certainly in England, I think it was it was also almost a watershed moment in many ways. I think it things changed quite a lot. We'd we'd also had Hillsborough, we'd had Heysel in recent times. You know, two terrible tragedies within stadiums. Um, so we were coming. Also, we England clubs were banned from Europe because because of what happened at Heysel. Um, so we came from a period really of the absolute doldrums for football. It was, you know, hooliganism was rife. Um, spectators were down. There weren't that many people going to watch football. Stadia were kind of Stadia falling, were falling apart. Yeah. And then suddenly we had 1990 and people fell in love with football again because we went long into the tournament. We had an amazing moments, Platt scoring, um, an incredible volley in the 120th minute, which is the last minute of extra time. Um, to send us through against Belgium. Then we played Cameroon. I got a couple of penalties and we sneaked through in that one. Then we played Germany and we were unlucky and we ended up losing on a penalty shootout. But it was like people fell in love with football again. It wasn't just the working class. All of a sudden, you know, we, we get, we get mobbed in the streets when we came home and, and Gaza's, Gaza, you know, women and young peers, Gaza's, Gaza's tears. tears yeah. and Gaza's tears. Gaza was obviously given a yellow card. He's second in the tournament in the semi final against Germany, which meant that he would, 
uh, miss the final should we make the final, which obviously we didn't because we lost in the penalty shootout. And there was a moment where I looked at the bench and it be, it's became the it became the question I was most asked. You know, what were you saying? And I just kind of gave a look with my eye to Bobby Robson and said, like, have a word with him. Keep, basically keep an eye on him because Gaza was starting to cry because he knew he wouldn't play in the final if we made it. But he actually rallied and did really well in, in, in extra time. So, Gary, that's against Germany. In our last episode, we were talking about the shadow of the Second World War. So when Germany won in um, 54 against Hungary, yeah. all the press coverage in Britain and France and elsewhere was about this was the resurgence of the Nazis. Well, Hungary were, Hungary were up in that final. They were indeed. In 1974, also Germany behind against the Dutch. They beat the Dutch. Again, it's the shadow of the war hangs very heavy, particularly for some Dutch players who'd lost family in the war. And then in 90... I mean, certainly from my perspective, having watched it, I remember the the huge sort of upsurge of anti-German sentiment in England among people of my generation who had never talked about it before, who felt, you know, the, the thought that the Germans of all people had beaten us on penalties. Well, we do, we do get, we do get a little bit obsessed with the Germans in this. <laughs> but did you, but did you feel that at all as players? Well, let me put, let me put it this way: the night before. The World Cup semi-final, England against Germany. We had a team meeting. Bobby Robson called a team meeting, and it was just before the other semi-final, which was taking place the night before our game, uh, which was Italy against Maradona's Argentina in Naples, where Maradona ends up scoring a penalty in the shootout, and they they knock the Italians out in his hometown. Um, not quite his hometown, but you know what I mean. But we had this team meeting. Now, during as I I, I said earlier, so often in 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 tournaments, it, there's not a lot going on. It's quite dull. So we try and entertain ourselves. Um, for example, I was, I always used to run a book, like a bookmaker. And we did the, all the players have bets on the football matches. We'd have race nights where our physio used to bring in tapes of race meetings. And I knew how to run a book because I did it at Leicester race course when I was about 16, 17 for a couple of years for a bookie. So I knew how to do that. And my roommate was Peter Shilton. So he, helped me do it. And we, we were called Honest Links and Schiltz. And we did all this betting. And on the night, the night before the um, England-Germany game, we had this meeting. Bobby Robson called it. He was a little bit late, as he often was. But he always used to have one of those clipboard, big paper clipboards. And before he came, I got the big marker pen and I wrote on it, even money, he mentions the war. So, and then I turn the <laughs> then I turn the page back over about the clip. So, and then Bobby Robson eventually comes in. Oh, sorry, I'm late, lads. He, and then he stood at the front, and his first words were, "We beat them in the war." <laughs> and the place was in uproar. Everyone's clapping. He's going, "What? What? What's going on? What's going on?" And someone said, "Look at the clipboard." So he, turned, he said, "Turn it over." He turned over the page, and he went, "Lenica, you bastard!" <laughs> so there were some people in your team. Who are who were very patriotic? I mean, the most famous example. Well, I, suppose, all, I think we're all patriotic. We, we show it in different ways. Terry Butcher, but, who bl- literally bled for his country, didn't no, he? Yeah, I remember. Play, I remember played Yugoslavia in one game. Terry Butcher was this. I mean, he's about six foot four. Terry, he's huge, big central defender, frightening bloke. And and I remember we played Yugoslavia. We had to get at least a point. And we went out. It was a qualifier for for Euros, or I think. And so we were in the tunnel before the game. And in, in the middle between the two teams, they had this like wire mesh kind of fence, bizarre thing. 
And um, I, I'll never forget that Terry Butchie went over it and he shook it. It was like, <laughs> come on, cage tiger. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, and they, they, you could see them shrink on the other side. They were terrifying. But yeah, we, yeah, obviously fiercely patriotic, but do you really think in 1990, young men going out to play in a world cup were actually bothered about what had happened previously in, in the no. war? Although the hooligans were, right? Because the hooligans still sing. Well, they, well, or they do you do, think it's just, just a performance? I, I think it's a performance, but I think it, you know, we, we, fans do sing songs to this day about various things that they shouldn't be singing about, really. So the final is West Germany, and it's the last time that it's West Germany rather than Germany, because, of course, the, the Berlin Wall had come down the year before, against Argentina. They can't both lose. Who do you want to win? That's a really good question. I actually went to that final. Um, to receive the aforementioned, remarkably yes, wonderful <laughs> FIFA Fair Play Award, yes. uh, which I received with Bobby Robson. Um, so I went to that game. It was the most dire game. So, I don't, it, um, But in the end, um, Germany went through a penalty from Andy Bramer, who took a penalty in the shootout against England with one foot, I think the left, and then in the final took it with his other foot, which for a... You know, it's yeah. quite an imaginable Impressive. thing to do, That's but German they cunning, won. They, they won by one. Yeah, I, I didn't really care who won, to be honest. Right. Okay, I think we should take a break here, and when we come back, perhaps we could look at some of the uh, the kind of the broad themes over the past thirty years in the World Cup. So, increasing globalization, uh, sinister despots taking over the World Cup, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Sure. So, uh, we will be back with um, the most recent decades of the World Cup. Welcome back to The Rest is History with our guest, Gary Lineker. Gary, um, Tom kicked off the very first episode with a brilliantly moving reading from a very popular newspaper by me about <laughs> the World Cup and corruption. And yes. just looking very, very broadly at the last few decades before we get into the individual stories, do you think the World Cup has sold its soul, as it were? Um, well, we've had enormous corruption issues. Um, I think the tournament itself is still magical. I think it's the greatest sporting event of all, personally, but I'm slightly biased, obviously, as a as a football man. Um, but yes, of course, where I mean, it's incredibly global these days, incredibly powerful um, corporate as well, and there's a massive amount of money. Now, where there's a massive amount of money, um, there's often corruption. Where there's money, there's mo- whatever it is. Um, and so, yes, we've had that to a great degree, um, much to the detriment of football. My favourite yeah. um, corrupt figure was Chuck Blazer. Oh, well, he's a remarkable bloke. <laughs> who, who was the American FIFA representative, mm. wasn't he? He was, yes. he was about 200 stone. I think he, I think he ended up getting paid a couple of apartments in New York where he would be in one. And but I think it was all paid for by FIFA and stuff. I think he had an apartment. He had a separate apartment for his cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it's, very kind of Roman emperor, isn't it? Tom? It really is. A bit, you know, he was a remarkable. I, I went to the notorious um, 2010, what they call the bidding finale um, in Switzerland when um, they decided to go with Russia and Qatar as the two, the two bids. I was, I wasn't part of the England bid team. I'd been left out of that, but somebody had got wind of the fact that I knew Michel Platini and I played golf with him and thought it might be a good idea if I flew out the night before and come, came and had a chat with one or two of the, 
the committee members of, of, of FIFA. You know, I said, where do your country call? So I, I went there, but there was already like Prince William and David Cameron and David Beckham and all these people. And um, it was it was a strange thing. It's all these committee members were all around this hotel room. You know, it was Chuck Blazer and all these um, dreadful, dreadful, some of them were. And we were sat there and I was thinking, where are all the people from the other bidding countries? There's no one else here. And I we had a burger. I sat down in a burger with David Beckham afterwards, as you do. And I said to him, I said, do, do, this is a bit odd, isn't it? There's only us here. Do you not think this has like already been done and decided? Um, and, and so it proved because England didn't even get past the first vote and the yeah. way they do it. And then it ended up being Russia, which, you know, Russia had a, had a strong bid, but, and then the remarkable thing came out the hat for the, for the 2022 World Cup, which is where we are now of the name Qatar. And it was like, what? And that's when, you know, you kind of you knew. absolutely knew that there was um, yeah. deep corruption. So you went, as a, when you were involved in the media, you went to the United States in 94, is that right? I didn't, actually. I was, um, I did a, I was playing in Japan at the time, it was at the end of career, and I did a bit of punditry for two weeks, but it was from London. And oh, right, yeah. So they were, we did do it around that World Cup, but I wasn't there. So that's the first World Cup, really, where they're clearly trying to kind of evangelise. Yeah, yes. they're trying to take it to somewhere where, I mean, do you think that's what they should be doing, spreading the gospel of football, or do you think they should be, it should be happening in places where people actually care about football? Um, it's a good question. I mean... I, I mean, they've got it again in the next World Cup, sharing it with Mexico and Canada. But no, I've, I have no problem with it, it, it going around the world. America's a strange one. You know, people say that, you know, they're not interested. And it's not there. It's obviously not in their top four sports. So I, I, I didn't feel like it was – if I was a player, it wouldn't be the one where I would have wanted to go at that particular point to play, but I'd just kind of finished. So – so yeah, I, whilst it's good that it's global, and I agree with that, I think, um, you know, I think it's important to be in countries really that that do least like football. A well, bit. I mean, there's there's not being interested in football, and then there's being so obsessed by football that when one of your players scores an own goal, well, that's yeah, you you shoot him. So the most notorious episode in the um, the '94 World Cup in in America yep. is when Colombia lose to the United States yes. and get knocked out. And um, Andres Escobar scores, he, he scores an own goal and he gets shot by, what is it? The chauffeur of two meddling gangsters, yeah, I think. I think yeah. Uh, and that's, well, it's indescribable, isn't it? It's, yeah. Because the reason why the world cup matters is that passions are, are so high, but that must, does that, does that, does that episode kind of hang as a, a warning to everyone in, world football as to just how far it could go well it it shouldn't obviously i mean i mean mean, to to do something like that um to one of your players for just basically making a mistake i mean it's not like he deliberately scored an own goal or anything like that but no i mean that's i mean it's a staggering story that that people i mean yes we all care and we get passionate and we want our country to do well in 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 sport, but in, and in football for me in particular, but it's just unimaginable that it could lead to something like there was that. A, a terrible thing he said, he, this was before he said in football, unlike bullfighting, there is no death in football. No one dies. No one gets killed. 
he said that i haven't seen terrible yeah terrible thing to have said but i suppose it's an example isn't it of how football there's always a slight sense that football is that people try to create that football is just entertainment and escapism from the world i mean obviously that's why so many of us love football because as fans but you can't ever escape it i mean so to go back to your story about that meeting in south africa the 2018 world cup was awarded to Russia. Russia, yeah. And by the time, in the, in the intervening period, Russia had taken Crimea and had become involved in eastern Ukraine. Yeah. And the World Cup happens in Russia. I mean, you went to Russia, didn't you? You went to the Kremlin and did the, did I, the I draw. I did the draw for FIFA at that, um, at the, at that stage, um, which was in the Kremlin. It's funny, I was asked to meet Putin a couple of times and refused because of obviously what was going on. And I think it was quite a good decision now. Yeah. <laughs> looking, I'm glad there's no, yeah, there's no photos. Um, yeah. And it was, but it, it was amazing to get behind the scenes in, in, in the Kremlin. I was like, in a solid gold dressing room. Mm-hmm. What happens if I press this red button? Whoops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. And it was funny because we had, they had, um, I was hosting it and they had like um, eight representatives of the countries that had won the world cup to actually pull the balls out of the pot. And we rehearsed for three days because it was incredibly complicated, the draw. Because so, you know, this continent couldn't play against this continent. You couldn't play there. You had certain amounts. Um, so we had three days rehearsals. And when they said three days rehearsal, I thought, really? Is that necessary? Um, but it was. Um, and the draw went quite well. And Diego was, uh, Maradona was doing the draw. He didn't turn up for the rehearsals. He just came at the end because he's Diego. And... Um, I remember he, he he drew the first one out and he picked it out with his hand and I went, oh, the hand of God strikes again. Um, and and he laughed at that. And then it was funny because he came up to me after the draw and it went really well. It went pretty smoothly, thankfully. And he, he came up to me and he went, Gary, he gave me a big hug. And because obviously I knew because I filmed with him before and he said, Gary, he said, he said, you're so good at this. He said, he said, you were, he said, you were quite a good footballer, he said. <laughs> but he said, but if you were as good at football as you are at doing this, he said, you might have been nearly as good as me. Oh, my word. And I love that. Well, lad. But you didn't. So looking back at that now, do you think the World Cup shouldn't have gone to, to Russia in 2018? I mean, I mean, Russia is a good footballing country and it's, just, you know, and, and, and often, you know, but we hate their politics and hate their leadership and, and, and we obviously hate what's happened subsequently. I mean, it's, I, I was more worried about the Qatar one because that was um, obviously bought. Um, yeah. Um, but the, you know, the Russia one was a reasonable bid. Um, but I thought, I, I thought our bid was much stronger and I, you know, I'm sure I mean, there's been no evidence of, of corruption and, and particularly on the Russian one beyond, I mean, that, Basically, everybody does bribes in a World Cup bid. You know, they, it's, it's changed a little bit now. Well, you know, those cats don't get housed. Well, that's it. On you their own, got, do you they? Got, I know. So, I mean, but no, I don't think, I've, I mean, the World Cup actually in Russia was, was really Success, good and the place yeah. was sanitized and it was, you know, everything was, everyone was looked after properly. But, um, but for the people of Russia, I would say, yes, it was nice, great for them to have the World Cup and that they really enjoyed it. Politically, though, I mean, there are so many instances in in the history of of the World Cup where you you could go politically. We shouldn't really have had it there. You know, yeah. you, you talked. I remember you had the 1934 World Cup with with um, the backdrop of Mussolini wanting it to kind of support fascism and things like that. So yeah. we've, um, we've had lots. 78 in Argentina, the military junta there was awful. Yeah, because I don't think that that's any you know. 
better than than Qatar getting it. No, well, exactly. no, no, no. That's my point. It's there's always something. 2014 in Brazil, there were massive demonstrations on the streets for people saying, "Why are we investing in stadia uh, when we should be investing in social care?" Um, so they took to the streets, and and so I'm kind of experienced with that. So it's, but at the same time, um, looking at Qatar, that's you know that, but ju- that just whole thing was bought just yeah. just to play devil's advocate. So they've the World Cup's been held in Japan and, and South Korea yep. in um, in two thousand and two. So that was Asia's first World Cup, and it was held in South Africa. So that was Africa's world first World Cup. Qatar is the first Muslim country to yeah. host it, and yeah. so the if it's a genuinely World Cup, isn't there a case for saying that it, it should go to regions of the world that that are not South America or Europe? No, I absolutely agree with that. I think, but you, you know, you could have had something in a, a Middle Eastern World Cup. There's no, but I think the issue obviously is obviously that, you know, there's human rights issues. There's, there's issues around every World Cup, wherever it is. We all, we always have this build up, but the, at the minute there's this whole sport washing concept where, you know, people try and get respect because they kind of buy it through sport. Um, you know, we've, we've had lots of meetings about this going into this World Cup and how we cover it and how we do this and that. And we had meetings with Amnesty International and they said, well, sport washing works if you stop talking about the issues. So we'll keep raising the issues. But do I think it should be there? No. Did I think it should be in Russia? No. Um, but, you know, how many countries in the world, I mean, obviously there are different levels of human rights issues and whether you've invaded someone and stuff like this, but you'd, you'd probably limit yourself quite drastically if you wanted everyone to be holier than thou. Um, but that's not saying that, you know, there are different levels of, of yeah. human rights issues. And, and what's about this issue? So, you know, the first, you talked about 1970. So that's a World Cup of 16 teams. And it's quite a simple structure. The World Cup's now 32, I think. Yeah. And it's going to be about 700, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's ever more. 48, the next one. It's ever yeah. more kind of Baroque. And yeah. it kind of, and there is a definite sense. Now, maybe you, some people listening to this will say, oh, these are just like old men moaning. But there's a definite old men sense, moaning. I would never. say, <laughs> never, never, um, that the specialness is, has already rather been lost. That there are a lot of matches that don't matter that there are a lot of teams that turn up for two weeks and then go home, um, that it's, uh, it's, it's bloated. bigger and bloated and, and therefore has lost some of the, the magic that it had. I disagree to a degree on that. I don't think there are many meaningless matches um, because obviously you've got the group stage at the, unless you win your first two games. I mean, you will get you know, games in the last stage of that group that are fairly meaningless. I watched with Tom in 2006. We went to the pub. And we watched Ukraine versus Saudi Arabia. I think yeah, I remember was. that. Yeah, oh, good N- for you. Nil, 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 Gary. Nil, nil, thriller. Uh, I can assure you that was a meaningless match. <laughs> no, you will get meaningless <laughs> games, of, uh, uh, and obviously occasionally. But once you reach the knockout stage of the last sixteen, then it's it, it's it's all wonderfully exciting. Though I think the fo- I've been the football in some of the world that you know in the last World Cup we had some fantastic football matches, some some brilliant games, um, and you know football. I think is better than it's the actual sport itself is better than it's ever been because of some good law changes. And, you know, you can't just kick people everywhere. Now the, the playing surfaces are beautiful, which make for better football. We've got some wonderfully gifted um, footballers right around the world. Um, politically, you can, you, obviously there are issues, massive issues, which we've talked about, but football wise, I think 
and, and, and you know, it's a World Cup. So, you know, yeah. to, to give more people, more countries the chance to play in it. Yeah. You can't imagine how massive that is for a small nation to be suddenly playing in the World Cup. I, I read, I was reading about the um, South Korea uh, who, when they held stage the World the Cup, they got to the semifinals yeah. and the South Korean president said of that, that it was Korea's happiest day since Dan Gun, who was the son of a bear and the creator of acupuncture, founded the country in 2,333 BC. Crazy. Wow. So he, he is- was, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. He was the son of a bear. Apparently, yes. <laughs> That's amazing. We yeah. sometimes have facts on this podcast, Gary, that turn out to be quite true. <laughs> oh, <laughs> necessarily true. That, that may well be one of them. Um, but ju- just, just to end, the justification for doing um, the World Cup on a history podcast is, is that it holds a mirror up to changing patterns in geopolitics. And I guess that one thing you could say about Qatar hosting it is that it is doing that. I mean, it is inconceivable that in, I don't know, 1990 or let alone kind of 1950, that Qatar would ever stage it. And in a way, it's reflective of the kind of shifts in global power, global wealth, all kinds of things. I think it's a reflection of that, isn't it? There's no question about that. I mean, it wouldn't, as you say, 30, probably even 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been thought of. But it, well, 12 years ago, it was decided it was going to be there to the shock of the world. Um, but it is there. And obviously, it's a very, very important um, part of the world now. Um, incredibly wealthy. The Qataris own, well, most of London, don't they, yeah, as well? And they've got a lot um, of gas. And they've got a lot of gas. Um, and. Yeah. So that's where it is, because money talks, doesn't it? Right, and it always will. So in other words, in 20 will. years' time, it always will, whether you like it or not, people will be the World Cup will be somewhere else that people are, I mean, presumably it'll be a Chinese World Cup within the next 20 or 30 years. Well, so that, that's so. the other question I wanted, just what, is, is that if it's a World Cup, two massive countries are missing from the World Cup, China and India. Mm. So I think, I think India did qualify, didn't they, for one World Cup, and they, they, were, they weren't allowed to play barefoot so they refused to turn that's up that's a that's a yeah that's a, that's a i think that's a slight myth but they didn't turn I up i think that sounds yeah. a bit like a myth they didn't turn up. it's not it's like the son of a bear kind of myth that wasn't <laughs> um so can it really be a world cup without say china and india well it's it, there's qualifying so they they yeah, go through that yeah. stage so every pretty much every, well every country in the world takes part in the pretty much i think in the qualifying so um, so it, they have been part of the World Cup process. I mean, China have played in World Cups, obviously, um, and you know they're not. They're not. It's not probably their biggest sport, but it's growing. Um, in India, it's starting to grow as well um, to a degree. Yeah, so, so time will tell. Um, but they're obviously they're countries that are not as interested in football as as, as elsewhere. But it is it's probably the most global sport, um, yeah. certainly team sport, really. So, Gary, this has been brilliant. It's strange to think that if your career had turned out differently, we'd have been doing this podcast with Mark Haightley. But, uh, <laughs> we've had to thank, make- thank heavens he left Mark Haightley out and kept me in the side. So, uh, so we've just had to make do with you. Yeah. Uh, but before I'm terribly we- sorry. How can I really apologise? Before we let you go, it would be remiss not to ask you for a few special predictions for Rest is History listeners. So, first of all, the finalists. The finalists in this World yeah. Cup coming up? Yeah. It's really open, this one. I think there's no obvious – it's it's also – it's a World Cup like we've never had before. It's it's unique. It's in the middle of a domestic lead season, certainly in Europe and a lot of other countries. We've never had a Winter World Cup, um, Northern Hemisphere Winter World Cup. So it's going to be difficult. And there's lots of players are getting injured. Um, I would have probably 
tipped France, but they've lost Kante, they've lost Varane, they've lost Pogba. Um, other countries have lost big players too. I, I suspect we might get a South American winner. Um, it's, uh, it's been 20 years since we did, since Brazil won in, in, in Japan, Korea. Um, so, and Argentina have not lost a game for around three and a half years. Um, Brazil, uh, always, always strong. The European teams, England have a chance. Um, we do have a chance. which is a little bit lighter than central defense. Um, Germany always have a chance, um, <laughs> because yeah. they're German. Um, and, but they've, they've not really got a striker, but France have won it in the past. France could easily still win it, uh, or they could implode. Um, Spain have got a chance, but they're a bit young and not great up front. So I actually, if if I had to say, I'd probably go either Brazil or Argentina. So, and would you like to see Lionel Messi? So Messi for those, I mean, surely everyone knows yes. who Messi is. The, <laughs> I would hope the, so. The, would the, the, so. Certainly the most, arguably the most talented player who's ever lived. Yeah, I, I, I never thought I'd see a better player than Diego Maradona. I'm not saying Messi is a better player than Maradona, but I never thought anyone would compare and they're so similar. And I, if I had to choose, I'd probably give it Messi because of longevity of career. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Maradona had his issues, which affected his career and, and Messi never has. Um, if England don't win it or don't get to the final, I would love to see, um, Messi do it for Argentina. It's, it's pretty much the only trophy he's not won. Yeah. And, um, he's won this Copa America. He did that. Um, not 18 months ago, um, which was amazing for him because he'd lost in uh, three, four major finals. Um, but he's an unbelievable player. Um, uh, for me, he's uh, just joyous to watch. So the rest is football predictions. <laughs> yeah. Gary, the official, so much. The official rest is history predictions. <laughs> I'm used to predicting anything. No, but I like the fact we've done, we've done three episodes yeah. on the history of the World Cup yeah. and we've ended up with predictions uh, and now we can see whether they come true or not. There you go. So, Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks everyone to listening. And um, we have coming up 32 episodes, not about football, but about <laughs> aspects of the history of every single country that is playing in every this World Cup. Every country in the World Cup, we do its history in the next 32 episodes, Gary. And wow. they'll run. Hats off to you guys. One a day. Amazing. One a day. So I'll be it's... listening. I'll be listening. It'll give me a lot of good lines for my World Cup, hopefully, <laughs> and good when I'm presenting. When we come back to you in 32 days' time and we say, Gary, tell us about the Costa Rican Civil War, <laughs> yeah. you will be, be enormously well informed. <laughs> do you not think I already know everything about that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. We Dr. should have had Dr. Valverde. <laughs> Don't test me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. 
If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.